Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to Rattlecast number 99. Thanks so much for joining me. Um, our guest today is Tina Parker. She'll be here at the bottom of the hour. But before we begin, I should say, Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. Uh, we just do this because we love poetry, and I know you do too, so please do click the like button and uh, share this uh, no matter what you can. Uh, spread, help us spread around the internet because that really helps. It's, it's poetry uh, spread spontaneously to some degree, but not as much as other things. So it really does help out if you can click uh, share and subscribe and all that good stuff. And I should say too, um, there was some confusion last week about the showtime, which kind of is moving around. There's really no way around it because sometimes we have guests that can't make the regular time. Um, I'm going to start posting a schedule again, I think, on the Rattlecast webpage. So if you go to rattle.com slash rattlecast, I'll uh, start listing the times again. For a long time, we were uh, we were having being at the same time every week, so it was easier. Um, but then we had some guests out of the country and some guests that couldn't do evenings. And... Um, and we have a f- more poets coming up. And next week is the 4th of July, Independence Day, here in the United States. So we're not going to do a Monday show. It's going to be on Tuesday. Um, so it gets kind of, you know, the summer is a time where we're, I'm working around people's vacations and things. So uh, it's going to be unusual times a little bit. So I will make sure to post uh, the links uh, or the list of the schedule coming up for everybody so that you know when to catch us. But you can also, um, if you follow us on Facebook, there's always an events page. Um, I make that a week ahead of time so you can check out what time it is. Uh, and on, if you're subscribed on YouTube, I can, um, you can see the, uh, thing when I set it up a week before. So, uh, there's a lot of ways to find out what time the show is. I also put it in the, uh, morning poem that day at the bottom of the page there. So you'll find it multiple places, but, uh, but last week, a whole bunch of people made phone calls into us at the time the show usually is for the open lines. And, um, thinking it must've been really confusing because they were watching a taped version thinking it was live, I guess. So sorry for that, everybody. Uh, but now let's do Poets Respond Live before we start, uh, before we get to Tina Parker, today's guest. And um, Michelle Bidding had this poem, uh, Cows Escape Slaughterhouse, Stampede Through California Neighborhood, which is today's Poets Respond poem. And let's call up Michelle right now and uh, see if she can join us. Let's see. Hello. Hey, Michelle. How you doing? Let me, uh, let's see. I don't have, I think you have to click the video button still. Here you come. Hello. It's great to see you. Oh, my gosh. Sorry about the lighting with the going through the screen behind. Um, I'm fine. How are you? I'm great. It was great to uh, to see this poem here and uh, and have you. We published it a bunch of times, but but not, you know, several years, I think. So it was great to see you again. Um, do you want to just talk a little bit about what this poem was about, what you saw that inspired it and, and why? Mm-hmm. Well, um, so I... Uh, the, uh, I would imagine a lot of people um, saw this uh, article come through, especially if you live in California or the Los Angeles area. Um, this happened. Um, these um, cows escaped. I guess they've. This has happened before. It's in the Pico Rivera um, area, and I think uh, it probably happens um, in many places where animals are pent up and caged and um, on their way to um, the slaughterhouse. So. This was a striking um, uh, uh, lead line, right? Um, and one thing I do want, uh, and so two things I want to say. Um, 
you know, when, when something kind of hits you viscerally, it, it was, it was amusing to watch. And it was also, it just like, it was like, yeah, go, go, go. Right. <laughs> so it, it, it hits on this kind of very um, deep visceral um, instinctual way. Right. Which is really good for writing. Um, potentially uh, something can come out of that. Um, uh, if, you know, if, if things go well and, and, um, and the way that we, we like them to go, they don't always. Um, so the other thing I want to say about it, Tim, is uh, I'm, I'm working on sort of a memoir, nonfiction, historical fiction cross-genre thing right now. And I was under deadline to get the, you know, 20-page annotated outline done and stuff. And this came through. And I've been sitting on my couch for days and days. I do get up and move around. But... Um, and look at my birds outside, um, drive my kids, all that stuff. But I, I, in my mind, I went, well, I don't have time to write this right now, but I, gosh. And then I just went, you know, just write, just, just write a little something down, write, write the, the opening line, you know, it starts to come to you. And, um, so that's the message to myself and to my students, um, follow that instinct, write it down because, the next day, when I did come have a little bit of time, I was still I'm still doing this other project. I put I said, well, I'm going to put two hours aside here and see if I can get something out of it. And I, you know, it's just a good reminder. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't take much time. I mean, you know, you have to set a sad time, but uh, but you know, you can write a great poem in a couple hours, and uh, and it really it, it saves that that feeling that you had and saves the time and and you know makes something to hold on to from that moment and those thoughts and ideas which are what poetry is supposed to do um yeah yeah the, the story reminded me of um just every time you drive the i5 i'm sure you do too you go by those this the you know and which uh you know my friend of mine used to call bovine university and um it's just tragic. I mean just mile yeah. after mile of the cows and every time we do like I feel like I should be a vegetarian and yes. then uh and then I'm not, unfortunately, I have to confess. But, but you know, I mean, sometimes I am. And well, um, more, more we need to be. So, mm -hmm. and yeah, Kalinga, that absolutely. In fact, I, you're just reminding me, the very first poem I ever wrote way back in college when I was, in when I was a theater major and in love with Lorca and the poetry and the plays of Federica Garcia Lorca and Dylan Thomas, um, who's who's uh, a line of, of his poem poetry is on my, my is um, tattooed on my arm now. But um, that was the first time I actually pulled over after I'd gotten past the smell and I jotted down, I've stopped my car to say these things to cows on their way to the slaughter. Oh, oh my wow. God. I remember that. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't the greatest poem, but it was like, it was a moment of, and I didn't wouldn't return to poetry in a really major way for for some years, but there was something where you know something was was sort of you're channeling you know that haunting thing. So yeah, it's interesting. And you know you don't have to write the whole poem at the mo at the time, but write something. And there's so many people that talk about that, right? Um, Ruth Stone, right, running through the field and mm -hmm. catching the the tail of the feather, and because if you don't write some, write it down, you won't remember later. You won't have that same feeling. But if you write even a few lines, yeah, just a sentence or two, yeah. you can come back to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you want to go ahead and read this? Sure. Okay. Okay. All right. Cows escape slaughterhouse, stampede through California neighborhood. Well. 
Who hasn't dreamt of busting the barn door down, shoving the iron gate wide, dust kicking up faces of whatever beast presumed itself ruler of you, decider with a rope and knife, buzz saw gleaming sharp and round in the eye of its killing hand. It's easy to forget the suffering of others when the meat's so juicy and fresh, which I'm sure wasn't my father's intention when he stuck his fork in our plates without asking, his fist through my bathroom door when, disgusted, I fled the table of family feasting. Blood should be free and warm through the feet of creatures clacking down streets of their sunnier mornings, something green and granular, still sweet in their cuspated teeth, a cool drink lapped from faucets along the luscious way. How isn't breath a gift we're born to relish? And at night, where a slow drift of stars drizzles honey for children to doze to, how about the open dream of witchery enough for leap, leaping moons clean over, away from death, just as fast and far as your slender legs can? Yeah, that was a great poem. That was, uh, once again, a Cow's Escape Slaughterhouse Stampede Through California Neighborhood. And, um, and I, I heard, I can't confirm this, but uh, in the comments on Facebook, somebody said that one of the cows was saved. Um, yes, because of this, no, I and, think there was a whole coterie. There was a whole band of of um, re- of saviors and and speakers and activists that that um, that celebrities or whatever that that came um, to the fore and um, did something. I think I heard that they were all going to get a, a pardon. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> but well, I know one in particular. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. I mean, it's great. Something good could come of it, and um, and a great poem too. Thanks so much for joining Thank us, Michelle. You. Thanks. Yeah, nice always a pleasure. Bye. Yeah. That was Michelle Bidding. And of course, uh, you can find more of uh, Michelle Bidding and her work at her website, which is uh, michellebidding.com right here. Michelle Bidding, and that's uh, Michelle with two L's, bidding with two T's.com. So find Michelle there. Um, and now uh, I was going to do something um, a little different because um, I was hoping we might get a poem uh, for Stephen Dunn, who passed away on Thursday. Um, he was 82 years old, I believe, um, had been battling Parkinson's disease for a long time. And, um, maybe later in this week or maybe uh, for next Sunday, we'll get a poem for Stephen Dunn. Uh, but about, was it 2017? Um, I I interviewed Stephen for an issue of Rattle, uh, for Rattle number 60. Um, it was a tribute to athlete poets and Stephen was a, uh, really good basketball player when he was young. Um, he played semi-pro and in college and, um, so it was for that Athlete Poets issue, and um, I drove into, or flew into Pittsburgh, and uh, made that trek down in February from uh, Pittsburgh to his house in rural Maryland. Um, it was just an amazing experience. Uh, you know, Michael Mark talked about it a little bit too, but it's like a place people pilgrimage to. And, uh, you know, when I flew in, I flew in in the morning, it was like a red eye, or maybe I stayed the night, but when I woke up in the morning, there was snow, and it wasn't supposed to be... Um, a snowstorm was supposed to be just a dusting. So I switched my car to an SUV at the rental place and uh, drove through these like winding hilly fields in rural Pennsylvania down to his house. And it was just pulling up his long driveway and then the house opening up there like some kind of poetry heaven. And then uh, him and his wife, Barbara, were so uh, friendly and just um, welcoming of people, which they always were. Um, so I have uh, the interview on tape 
um, the whole thing is recorded, of course. Let me transcribe it for Rattle's issues. And at one point, uh, Stephen read one of his poems, Lucky is the answer to one of my questions. And so I thought it might be nice to um, play a poem of Stephen, uh, his own poem, Lucky, uh, reading it himself. And um, let me do that right now in, in, in this interview, too. There's a little clip of us talking, and then, um, and then he goes in to read his poem, Lucky. So that will be our uh, little tribute to Stephen Dunn, who just one of my favorite poets. Um, and it's really sad to see him go. Uh, but he left so much and so many books, and all of his books are great, so check them out. But here is uh, the interview and uh, the poem. Even if we say our best thing, our smartest thing, if it doesn't have a formal apparatus to it, it's not going to, nobody's going to pay any attention to it. What do you mean by formal apparatus? Because most of your poems are free verse. So. I, I, I spend a lot of time talking about the formalities of free verse, mm-hmm. uh, which, you, which are essentially hearing what you put in the air of your poem, following it through, shaping it, writing great sentences, uh, knowing what the, where the arc of the poem is. That's probably the architecture. There's no point unless you're trying to write a great poem. Mm-hmm. And Except your notion of what a great poem is when you're 18 is very different. Yeah. Uh-huh. When you're 40 and when you're 50. Uh, I, I think you should always... Certainly there's pleasure for people mm-hmm. in writing little doodads and rolling. And even poems that, that are better than that. Uh, but nobody's going to care about it at all. You know, it'll evaporate real quick. I imagine one of the thrills of being an editor is finding that poem that really is, it, it just does it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's what makes it worth yeah. doing. Yeah. Yeah. And so you think, um, so I, I, I gather you don't think you can stumble upon that. You know, you can't get lucky and, and find a great poem unless you really commit yourself to being a poet. Exactly. I I have poem called Lucky. Comes from uh, a quote from Albert Camus. Uh, Loyal obedience to the rules jointly defined and freely accepted. Because Camus on on the true lessons of morality come from sport. Mm -hmm. It's a good definition of democracy too. Lucky. Oh. Lucky that we didn't know the games we played would teach us about boundaries and integrity. It would have smacked of school, we who longed for recess. And lucky when exiled to right field were not chosen at all. We didn't know the lesson was injustice, just how much that we, we could tolerate. But always there'd be the boys who never got it, calling foul and foul that it wasn't or marking with an X the spot where the ball didn't hit. Where are they now? What are they doing? Lucky that some of us who loved recess came to love school, found the books that gave us a few words for the agree- for what the agreed already knew. Lucky that within rules freely accepted, we came to recognize a heart can be ferocious, a mind devious and yet fair. Mm. I'm not 
sure that speaks to your question, but luck, luck is what Jack Nicholas says, you know. Mm-hmm. He means put a great book because he did a thousand of them before that. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And that's why I, I, I shot millions of shots by myself and with others, which is why I was able to score 40 points once. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that was uh, Stephen Dunn reading his poem Lucky uh, from the interview. If you notice, uh, you get an idea of how the interviews are edited. Uh, it's pretty much word for word what we do, but then we set it to the poet, and they can make little changes here and there. And um, but but this section and and most of the things that we uh, we publish are just word for word transcripts of us sitting down there. And it was so great to to talk to uh, Stephen Dunn for those few hours and then have lunch with them. And uh, so many people have had that experience too. So we'll miss uh, Stephen. But some great advice for uh, for poets out there. Um, it reminds me of the Randall Gerald quote that's famous, where um, a good poet gets struck by lightning, or and a great poet stands out in the field day after day and gets struck by lightning twice. Um, Watch that a little bit, but it's something like that. And um, that's what Stephen Dunn was talking about there. You have to do the work to uh, to write a great poem. You have to sit down in front of your desk every day and write and write and write. And then sometimes it really works. Um, so let's go, go to the open lines now. And um, we will see. Let's see. Who should we call up? Um, I'm trying to find somebody who definitely has a PR poem. Um, on the list, who, who's mentioned having a poet respond that they'd like to read? So we try to make the the t- first half of the hour poet respond. Yeah, let's uh, let's call up Richard Westheimer. Uh, Richard always has good poems, and uh, he says he's got a poet respond poem for us. Hey, Richard, how you doing today? I'm doing great. Oh, that that interview gave me chills yeah it was it was really it's a highlight of my life to be able to i mean he was one of the first people that i fell in love with poetry for i uh you know i and i wasn't a poetry fan or reader and then i read his and lee young lee and a few other poets like that and and so um it was just a it was really like some kind of spiritual thing to go to his house uh which a lot of people have i mean if, if anybody had the chance to it was a really wonderful place it was sort of like an artist colony almost the amount of stuff that they did there um in the town and the amount of people that would go there yeah. And then that poem is, uh, as, as you pointed out, sort of an Ars Poetica. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Ars Poetica of just grinding it out. <laughs> yeah. And that's what you have to do. And that's what he did. I mean, he wrote, wrote you know, constantly for his whole life, really. Yeah. Um, so what poem did you want to read? The Poets Respond uh, poem? I'll have two of everything? Yeah, I'll read the Poets Respond poem. I'll have two of everything. Yeah, this is a good one. You're, I got to tell you, Richard, you are getting really good where every week there's a good good poem uh from from you well, um, this was another good one too i appreciate it and one, one of the things i've been thinking about today is that i i'm been sort of obsessive about writing for poets respond because it's always about something that's way outside me mm-hmm. and it's like this real sort of disciplinary challenge to like find something and this one i worried until two o'clock in the morning started at uh, way earlier in the week and just couldn't find it and couldn't find it. But that activity of just grinding it and working it and you know, believing in, 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 in the poem uh, is a particular for me with Poets Respond because 
<clears throat> the material is so alien mm. so often. And there's a deadline too, which I like. I need deadlines. I can't really write <laughs> unless I have, <laughs> which is why I, why I'm using the show. I'm like exploiting all of the audience for uh, making myself write some stuff too, because I, I wasn't until uh, the show. Yeah. Um, so so that's yeah. what that's what I love about it too. Um, okay. So so what was the this poem? Uh, what was the story uh, that you're writing about? Uh, gosh, I have to. Oh, it was about it was about a moray eel. Oh, that's which, right. Uh, New York Times had great fun with this headline. Uh, you know, when an eel does something, 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 that's a moray, was the was the headline, which caught a lot of people's attention. Um, and but I was just transfixed by this picture of an eel. Turns out eels are the only animals that have two jaws, and they clamp down on something with the first jaw and then the other one leaps out of their throat and grabs it. Yeah, and that's amazing. I never, I mean, that's like something out of an alien, like literally the alien, you know, the mouth and the mouth. I had no idea that was inspired by something real. I, I yeah. pulled up, I found the video. I, I don't have a New York Times subscription, but I pulled up the video for YouTube. So I'll play it so people can see uh, what we're talking about here. Um, this is it. So he grabs it and then another mouth comes out and sucks it down its own. Oh man. <laughs> there it and, goes. And ev- evidently, um, you know, tra- pe- traditional eel fishers will lay um, bait up on beaches and these mores leap out of the water and sort of like do this primordial thing. And you can imagine them like being the first creatures to crawl out of the muck. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, wow. So, uh, should I go ahead? Yeah, go ahead. I'll have yeah, two okay. of everything. Yeah. I'll have two of everything. My buddy tells me I buy too much crap. I've got some sort of pathology, he says. What I don't tell him is, who knows when an apocalypse might come and the cans of kerosene I have left over from Y2K might come in handy. And if the grid fails and Amazon ends next day delivery and greenbacks are no longer good and folks trade cigarettes and sex for essentials like cat toys and reading glasses, I'll be prepared. Instead, I tell them about eels who have two sets of jaws used to consume what they need. In scarce times, some climb up on land and forage. I say to my buddy, see, this is why I do it. You never know when you might need two of something. Unlike Noah, who heeds a voice intoning two by two by two, because the flood will come and the creek will surely rise, which is why I have two identical socket wrench sets. So if the end times marauders lay siege to my workshop or I lose a set, I'll still have another to fix broken stuff. My buddy tells me that I'm more like Midas, except everything I touch turns into too damn much. I touch a can of beans, it turns into a case. I touch a roll of toilet paper, it turns into 10. I touch anxiety and it becomes panic. This is the part of the poem where I expect answers, some way out of the mess I've made, but all I've got are beans and a missing socket wrench set and a mythic king who, if transported to my house, and perused my shelves, he'd shake his head at all I'd given up to fill them. He'd leave me alone with my stuff, which is the same as alone. Yeah, that is such a great last line, too. Uh, but then, you know, the combination of humor and, and seriousness in that poem is really good. Um, and that last line pops out 
Um, and now we all know if the coronal mass ejection hits and the apocalypse comes, we know yeah, we come can to all come in, we're I'll coming to Richard Farm. You got a farm, you're supplied. Um, so, so we'll see you there. Okay. <laughs> see you, Tim. Yeah. Thanks, Richard. Have a good one. Thanks. And that was uh, Richard Westheimer with LF2 of everything. Uh, let's see. We have five minutes left until we go on to Tina Parker, today's guest. Uh, let's do our uh, Saiku in that case. And uh, the Saiku that I wrote this week, and of course, I always do a little Saiku just to sort of remind you, uh, everybody watching, that uh, you don't have to write a poem about, you know, a poetry spawn poem about the big news topic of the day. There's news just flowing out of the world. And uh, there's science news every week. And uh, this week's science story that caught my attention was this right here. Uh, i got to say goodbye to Richard for a second. Um, it's right here. This is, uh, it's true, uh, stress does turn hair gray, and it's reversible. So uh, there's the old axiom that, you know, you, you're, driving me, <laughs> you're driving me to gray hair. Um, you tell your kids stuff like that, uh, because it, we feel like stress uh, turns our hair gray. And uh, this study out of uh, Columbia University proved that it's true. Uh, th- what they did is they took hairs, they had this special technique where they could slice uh, one slice slices into the hair uh, one twentieth of a millimeter thick, and uh, each slice then represented an hour of hair growth. And so you could drill back through time in that way, in the same way that scientists do uh, the ice cores um, for you know measuring climate change. And uh, so you can go back in time. And then they took uh, journal diaries. Uh, for the the study participants and examined day by day how much stress they had, how much psychological stress. And they found that on stressful days, they grew more gray hair. Not not more gray hairs, but the hairs that they were growing were grayer. And uh, one of the study participants went on vacation during the period of the study. And while he was on vacation, his hair stopped turning gray and went back to being uh, pigmented. And uh, they trace this back to some proteins uh, in the mitochondria. And um, so, so somehow the stress, psychological stress somehow affects our mitochondria, which um, has implications for aging and um, whatnot. But if you, if you think that, uh, you know, people are driving into gray hairs, uh, it's true. And uh, that was the psyche for the week. But it reminded me of how much my hair turns gray this time of year, because uh, here's my psyche. Where I put it? There it is. Dry summer, all the fuel in the foothills going gray. Dry summer, all the fuel in the foothills going gray. And that is our Saiku for this week. And uh, we're going ki- to catch up with Tina Parker in just one second. And um, as always, you know, Tina is... Uh, a great poet, two wonderful books we're going to be going over. Uh, if you have any questions for Tina coming up, leave them in the chat windows on both uh, YouTube or Facebook, and I will pass any questions along. And then we'll have open lines later at the end of the show after we talk to Tina for about an hour and, and talk about her two books. So um, I'm going to take a quick break, and I'll be right back with Tina Parker. And we're back. Thanks, everybody, for waiting while I got connected with Tina Parker. 
Um, Tina Parker's newest book is uh, Locked Up, Lock Her Up, I should say, which is uh, right here on the screen. Uh, and that is new from Accents Publishing. Um, Tina Parker is the author of three books of poetry, the poetry collection Mother May I and the Poetry Chapbook, another offering were published in 2016. Her newest collection, Lock Her Up, is uh, just out from Accents Publishing. Tina has work, work, her work has received support from the Kentucky Foundation of Women. Individual poems have been published in Appalachian Heritage, Still, Rattle, Literary Mama, Pen and Brush, and a whole bunch of other places. She grew up in uh, Bristol, VA, but now lives in Berea, Kentucky. And here she is, Tina Parker. Hey, Tina, how are you doing today? I'm so glad to be here. I'm live with you. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, I've been such a fan of your work uh, for a long time because you are a really unique writer. Um, the the way you know, we'll see as we go through your poems, but but you have a way of um, of pulling through image and having these really concise, tight poems that are about they're, they're very substantial and they're very short and c- sort of creative and experimental. And uh, it's really cool to have you on the show finally. Oh, thank you. I've been looking forward to it. Uh, what did you want to start with? I'm going to start with some poems from Lock Her Up. Okay, great. Uh, Yeah. Um, So this book, just to say a little bit about it, big picture, it started with me asking questions. Um, Who is sane and who decides? That's kind of the questions that came to mind. And it brought together uh, many obsessions of mine. And I'll say a little bit more about that after I read a couple of poems. Um, so I'm going to start with the day they came for me. Okay. I'll go ahead whenever you're ready. I have it up on screen. Now. Okay. The day they came for me. I sliced open the sun. I walked the tightrope and touched the moon. I drank stars that day. I danced with a tree and climbed into thunder. The day they came for me, I cartwheeled into the sea and sang Open the Snow. That was the day they came for me. Uh, the opening book um, to lock her, the opening poem to lock her up. And, and just that great ending. Uh, those last two lines are just heartbreaking. But in the way that, that is really emblematic of the way you write, which is that they're very image-based and they're heartbreak or, or something like that. Um, do you want to explain about how... Um, how this book came to be, um, you have, we have images from the research that you did. How did you, how did you come across this? It's sort of a project book. How did you come across this project and think about, how did you start thinking about doing it? It is, it just came, all of these obsessions of mine came together. So, um, I, you know, I had come off of writing Mother May I, a project book that I'll read from later. It's also really project based. And then I got interested in, um, everything to do with, Uh, all aspects of being a woman. I got interested in ghost stories, speculative poetry, um, witches, folklore. You know, I'd always had this interest in um, the place I'm from, Appalachia. Uh, So basically it just brought together, I got to look at the notion of women and mental health. And I got to bring together, you know, what were the women's lives like back home in Appalachia during that time. And then it just all came together because it just so happened the asylum you know, where I grew up is one of the few still open today. And because these things were built in the 1800s as these beautiful buildings and a lot of them are no more or they are becoming shopping centers. And, but then I also realized I could go to the Library of Virginia and access the patient records, uh, which isn't the case in every state. So it was like all of these 
had stars aligned toward this project and I just dove in and started researching, reading all that I could get my hands on. At, at what point did you sort of like realize you had a, a project and it was going to be a book of poems? I mean, it, you know, it seems like it's something you were fascinated with. and But then at some point it, it, you think like, hey, this should be a book of poems. Uh, when did that happen? That is a good question. I think about a lot. And for a long time, I just let myself read. I was reading all types of nonfiction um, about the history of mental health. Uh, medicine in general in our country, which is really not all that old. I let myself read all kinds. I just let soak it all in. And I didn't know for a long time. And then I started um, also looking at like photographic essays of asylums where, you know, photographers would go in uh, to these huge buildings that are now empty and photograph all that was left behind. And so it probably was about a year of letting, you know, following all those rabbit holes. And then I was like, you know, I think I started seeing three women characters. That's kind of how it mm-hmm. came to be. I was like, I think these three women's stories um, will be a thread through the poem um, in a way that's very mysterious. Like it's not obviously uh, that I did start thinking about the types, like the daughter committed by her father and the wife committed by her husband and a widow committed by her son. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so these, uh, those three characters sort of archetypal of the patients that you were reading about, right? They sort of, they're blended and not based on Mm -hmm. any one person, but, but blendings of multiple people. Definitely. Yeah. So they kind of become composites, Mm -hmm. but I could see these patterns um, and those, you know, the three different ages. And I started thinking a lot about, uh, you know, these transitions in women's lives and how those are perceived, you know, are, is it something, are we grieving or are we insane? You know, um, those sorts of questions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it takes me back to, um, you know, in, in psychology, there's the diathesis stress model where the, the stress, um, speaking of stress in my psych who, but, um, you know, people <laughs> who have a predisposition for mental imbalances, um, you know, it's the stress of certain times that push them mm-hmm. over the threshold in which it becomes unstable psychologically. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I know from, I mean, you're a parent, um, I'm a parent too. I have two kids and that, that man, that first couple, the first year is just, or the mm-hmm. first child, um, mm-hmm. man, it, it is tough to, I mean, the stress is, is, is massive. And so that it would push people toward, um, the mental problems that they, they might not otherwise have is, is something that makes sense. But then the, the treatment, um, there's so little treatment for it at the time. Yes. And that really was a bridge for me just because there were also around parenting, there's all these cultural pressures and expectations. And it took a lot of, you know, like trying to find, keep myself like as a person in the middle of all of these roles that I'm expected to fill. Um, that is when I started thinking really heavily about mental health and, mm-hmm. and the history of that in our country. Yeah. Uh, do you want to read some more poems? Yes. Thank you. Um, This next one is called Testimony. Yeah, go ahead. I have it. Okay. Testimony. They told the judge I sat before an open fire, fell right into it, but wasn't a hair on my head singed. They recalled my vision, a prophetess wearing clothes the color of rotten grasses, grounding sage to a fine powder. They said I put it in their tea told them to drink and be sanctified, said their throats burned, claimed they could not speak. The minister said he'd seen many slain in the spirit 
but not me, said I was different, that he felt directed to sign as witness. Yeah, and then you have next, on the page next to it, you have this um, uh, reprint of the certificate. Um, do you want to explain a little bit about the, those details that you've included uh, in the in the book? Yes, so it wasn't that long ago that, you know, a woman being committed to an asylum was a court proceeding. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course, like in that time, this is like 1800s, early 1900s, it would be the men of the community you know, there'd be the men of her family bringing her, there'd be a male judge, there'd be a male or two witness, like the minister. And um, so for me, it was just this treasure trove for a poet of, you know, what is the backstory? There's a document that I can see um, in the archives at the Library of Virginia. And then there's just layers and layers of um, what is not said, which is what I love about poetry when we get to talking about, you know, what. What's on the page and what's not. <laughs> yeah, well, but let's talk about that now, actually. That's a good, maybe a good segue. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so how do you approach a poem? Like, what are you thinking about in terms of writing a poem when you write a poem? Because I, I, your style really jumps off the page as something um, different from other poets. But, but what, is, what is it you're, you're thinking when you go about writing? Well, for a lot of time, it doesn't look like I'm writing a poem. You know, that's what uh, it may look like. I'm just reading and reading and, and a lot of, Sometimes that's poetry when I want to get like a certain cadence. Uh, and sometimes it's like nonfiction, all types of research. And then I just say, it's a lot of time sitting and staring. I really require a lot of time to do that. But it's just this, all of these things just start coming together. Um, and I rarely ever just say, I'm going to sit down and write a poem now. Instead, I'll um, have these little snippets in a writer's notebook and I'll make like glue myself to the chair and painfully go through the writer's notebook and start pulling out tidbits. And um, with this project, a lot, you know, like their documents, sometimes it's visual uh, and I will start to see ways I want to play around and make it some sort of found poem slash experimental um, way that it looks on the page. So I can see that happening. Um, and I like to do, again, like leave blank spaces, white space. And, and I, it's fascinating to me how you can like take these really technical documents and do one little thing to them and it'll either change a meaning or give all these other layers of meaning. Yeah. And, and so much of the poem you know, seems like it comes from those sources. What percentage do you think is, is just your, is, is sort of found poetry that you're weaving into language in your own language that you add is like connective tissue? Because a lot of it is, it almost feels like a, a kind of like archiving uh, as you read this book. Um, mm-hmm. I have thought about that a lot because um, as I think of, you know, what can I um, archive next and, and start to list. That's, there's just a part of me that really, I think that's from a young child. I just love to sit and listen to people uh, and catalog thing, you know, like catalog what's going on around me. Uh, when I was real little, it was a sticker book. Um, but it's hard to know. Like, I think it just all, a lot of it also has to do with like, I'll start hear the vo- hearing the voices of these women um, and the way they talk. And then that just all gets woven in together. Yeah. Uh, do you want to keep reading? I always want to uh, make sure we keep moving through poems, too, as we talk. Yeah, too. Sure. Do you want to read another poem or two? Okay, sure. Uh, let's see. Did you get to show the um, the page, the way that that document looks? Um, I haven't yet, but, but so I have the, um, 
Um, there's the um, State of Virginia report of commission regarding the sanity. Is that what you were? Yes, yes, the report of commission. Yes. Yeah. That, this that. will be a good time to show that. Yeah, that's this right here. It's on screen now. Oops. <laughs> and um, yeah, so this is um, the State of Virginia. Well, do you want to describe this, what it is and, and where you found this? Yeah, this was the court proceeding document I was talking about. Mm -hmm. So it is from the Library of Virginia and just coming through these, you know, individual files. And the other one, I can't remember why that one was blank either, which I thought was, <laughs> <laughs> oh, maybe it was just faded. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, do you know what year this is from? It says 190, I think, but. Yes, it does. It would be early 1900s. Mm -hmm. um, and there was like, and had to be 75 years and older when I went and did my research. And just recently, they, they made it even longer than that. So oh, yeah. I mean, uh, that makes sense. You wouldn't want it to be available to the public while someone's still alive, possibly. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. And that's by state law. <laughs> yeah. So then we have this one that's handwritten text. I'll put that up to uh, do you want to describe yeah, what this is? Yeah, so this was um, almost like this would be the nurses um, checking in on the patient. Mm -hmm. So it's them giving like, here's the date and here's what's going on with this patient. So it's very one sided. Uh, and this this one in particular was about a girl who was very young, just out of school. Uh, so this is where they would kind of describe how, how does she look when she comes in to the asylum? How is she behaving day by day? And that, again, was just so much fodder for poetry yeah i'm, I'm sure i mean uh, one of the questions i had actually given the amount of um like substance you have here i mean the amount of content you've looked through like how do you carve it into a, a small book of poetry what you know it's a it's a very concise <laughs> yeah. uh, book of poems and um and how did you sort of decide what to what to pick from and what not to that took a long time i mean it probably took about let it sit for six months or so. And then I actually like print out all the pages and lay them out on the floor and start to think about how they're going to fall together. Uh, and it gets, yeah, it just kind of gets to be this feeling of, you know, like what needs to fall out and what can go with the stories of roughly these three women. Mm -hmm. uh, and I turned my wheels a long time to um, figure out and worked with my editor to kind of, to get the three sections into admission, treatment, release. And so that frame helped too, mm -hmm. to kind of figure out what would stay and what would go. Uh, well, I said we were going to read poems. So what's the next poem? Yes. Uh, I kind of got sidetracked. Uh, before the time before time, is that what you wanted to read? Yeah, the before time. Or the before yeah. time, yeah. Yeah, thank you. The before time. Each time I came to, there were more people in the room. They fell to their knees, spoke in tongues, lined out hymns. Granny bought sang for my female weakness. She said, but still, I could not get out of bed. Used to be I'd go with her. I had a quick eye for all manner of roots and kept my wits about me in the woods. Now I asked for catmint to calm my nerves, for co-wash to ease the cramps. The nurses bring more bromide. They curse and spit the word witch. Then leave the room before I can ask again. Yeah, and that was the before time mm -hmm. from Lock Her Up. Let's hear another one, too. Okay. 
This one is called Release. The minister says I'm alive through grace, says they may never know what rendered me silent. He tells them to pray. The Spirit gives several messages in other tongues. Praise the Lord, they shout. Praise the Lord. The women place a Bible under my pillow. I dream my voice returns. I point to the minister, but no one listens. And that was Release from Lock Her Up, the newest book by mm-hmm. Tina Parker. Um, can you just talk a little bit about like, like what you learned maybe that you didn't know before um, doing this research, like, like broad things, like, like how long were people staying in these places and, um, and things like that? Like what was, there, what was the common, like the regular experience? Um, you know, I worked as a, um, um, a, a counselor, um, a mental health counselor, and, um, and one of the clients we had was a, um, one of the last people in the United States who'd had a lobotomy. Mm-hmm. And um, and so she was sort of in and out of, of homes uh, because of that. And, and just we had some of just the most heartbreaking nights because I worked a lot of overnight shifts and she'd be up late and we'd just be talking all night. And um, of how she feels like felt like she left herself behind there, you know, like mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. I think it was in the early 70s, maybe um, where that right, happened. She yeah. was one of the last people um, to have that done. Um, but, but so what did you, what did you learn? Like in the big picture of things about, about this practice that, that thankfully is over, but, um, mm-hmm. I think that I learned, like I started to see the trauma, uh, the evidence of that in what, how the women came in and how they were um, cataloged basically. So, you know, like there would be, old. Oh, we're admitting this young woman and she has a jaw on this side of her, I mean, a bruise on this jaw. So there would be all of this backstory uh, that we wouldn't have, you know, firsthand from this woman. But that's one thing that I saw. The other was um, that there could be pay patients, um, at least at this asylum near where I grew up. So, um, you know, like a father has his daughter there as a pay patient. And um, and then part of like cataloging her in is ends up writing about him. So it's like, she's here as a pay patient and her father owns considerable property, you know? Um, it's like, that's interesting. I'm not sure yet how that's tied to her own, you know, well-being and mental health. Um, then the other part was in that same case and in others, there will be letters from the superintendent back home. And you could tell that one in many cases, like a woman had been sent back home and then the family is writing to ask if she can come back. Mm-hmm. And so there's like the superintendent letter saying, oh, well, we are surprised that she had not shown any, you know, signs of unease for so many months. And so a lot of times, you know, there would be shorter stays like of six months and then the woman would go home and then maybe come back. So those are some of the things I was seeing that I wouldn't have known or thought or mm-hmm. thought about. Yeah, that's interesting to hear because it's similar, you know, when I was working in that field, uh, you know, we had a, we sort of had transition housing where I was, where people were trying to, you know, get their lives back intact. And then they'd go home to their families where all the triggering trauma was. I mean, right. you know, like abusive spouses or abusive parents and or siblings and, and just the memories of, or the drugs, you know, and, mm-hmm. and they, you know, it was just hard to keep up anything, um, you know, the, the recovery that we made, the progress we made would always like revert at Christmas time, you know? I mean, it right. was just, it was just mm-hmm. heartbreaking to see, um, 
you know, that happen. And, um, but, but at least, you know, everybody was trying, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and it felt like, um, you know, it feels like back then it was more trying to, trying to get things out of sight. Mm-hmm. Yes, it did feel like that. And just to think of all of those supports that wouldn't be in place, like how jarring that would be mm-hmm. to be passed back and forth. You know? <laughs> yeah, um, I think there was one last poem you wanted to read from the book. Do you want to read or yes, from this book? Do you want to read that one? Yes, it's called Arrival. Okay. Arrival. God save me. God could not. Safe here, away from him, or nearer. A door, another door after door, and I open. I open my bags. They've emptied me. They've taken her. God, be with me. Let me keep the baby. I've not had time to finish her blanket. The final door opens. And that's uh, Arrival. And that line, God be with me, let me keep the baby, just such a, a powerful line uh, at the end of that book here. And once again, this is Lock Her Up, which is available from Accents Publishing. And because I just saw somebody ask, you can find um, the book at tina-parker.org. So um, so that's the best place to go probably, because I assume the author has the best link up that they'd prefer. Um, so go to Tina's website to find out where to get a copy of that book. Um, so, so let's take a pause and, um, and we're going to talk about Mother May I, your first book. Um, but let's, let's sort of back up and talk a little bit about how you came to poetry and, and, um, how long have you been a poet and, and what, what sort of guided you through your life as a writer? I've been really serious about poetry for, um, a little over 20 years now. And, um, it started, you know, as a child, like I had my first diary when I was eight years old that I bought with my own money has the little lock and key. Um, and it started by just writing things down in there that I thought I shouldn't say. I even like censored myself. So I have the diary. I'm like, cuss words about my brother are scratched out. Like, in the mind. <laughs> um, so that's what it was. Like I found my voice there on those pages. And I loved, always loved listening to people talk. So like my, you know, family getting together, listen to them telling stories. And I was just that, you know, the child who people a lot of times wouldn't notice because I was just observing and taking everything in and and not saying very little out loud. But um, I grew to love poetry around some teenage angst. That's kind of how I said, that's where mm-hmm. I became poetry and just stuck with it from there. And I, I think I was saying some about like, I love um, revising. I like making things really concise. And I love the backstory. Like I say, you know, I grew up hearing stories, but a lot of times the whole story was not told or there were things that we weren't supposed to say or talk about. And so I love that about poetry because that's what I like to do is have like a lot of it off the page, a lot of tension mm-hmm. um, between what is said and what's not said. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it because it's, you know, that there, you know, you have really short lines and, and a lot of white space. And then the tension is like in between and in that white space around the things that you do write. Um, what what poets do you like to read? Are there, do you like to read poems in the same style? Um, or do you like to do you branch out to different people? Like, do you have any recommendations for a reading list or anything like that that you especially, you know, per, as you progress through as a writer? Yeah, I have. Um 
Rachel Zucker, I read, you know, I read those books, her books, I would read over and over and copy out line after line as I was working on Mother May I. Uh, I love experimental poetry, um, which she definitely has like the really long kind of breathless feeling lines. And I love Anne Sexton. Um, obviously, you know, I read that many times as I was working on Lock Her Up. And Marie Howell, Nicole Brown. Oh my, it's hard to, it's hard to think when yeah. like, ask that directly, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it definitely is. Um, so if anybody has any uh, questions for Tina, please ask them in the comments. Uh, I'm looking at, at Facebook and uh in YouTube. So, um, ask any questions there and I will pass them along. Um, now your first book or your first full length book, I should say is mother. May I, um, do you want to talk a little bit about, about that and what, what inspired that book? Cause it's a similar, you know, very, um, tightly woven thematic book. Um, so, so how did that book come to be? Yeah, that is true. I mean, they really are both, um, kind of linked story poems that kind of all together tell one story. Um, this book, come, I say, came about from parenting and just feeling all of this, like I was saying earlier, all of the expectations, like, oh, you're not supposed to say no. You should instead say, never use this word. <laughs> you know, I mean, there was just all of these how-tos, uh, what I should and shouldn't do, and then all of that colliding with, like, making sure I maintain who I am as a person, aside from being a mother, um, which I don't even know if that's possible, as I said. <laughs> um, and then I would, um, I went into these like very, these exercises where I would just write down everything that I said, um, mothering over the course of a week or day. Um, I would record dreams um, that I had and that the really small children were telling me about. And then I would record things they said. And so it really, it kind of came from that. And I think another part was kind of thinking about my own mother, my grandmother. So like that line of women and um, how those stories, you know, what their lives were like and what they did and did not tell me. A lot of what they did not tell me um, coming to play as well. Um, well, let's hear, uh, let's hear some poems from the, this book too. Uh, what, what did you okay. want to read first? This one, the first one is called Stop. So um, this is, again, like cataloging what I would say and um, making myself face like all the things I swore I wouldn't say or do as a parent. <laughs> Stop. No, we're not playing baby anymore. Get up. You can walk. Use big girl words. Sit down or you're not getting dessert. You have a napkin right there. Why are you wiping your mouth with your sleeve? Why are you doing that? Please let me eat. I need my arm. You're hanging on it. Stop kicking her. You're not going to bite your sister. We don't hit. I don't know why I plan things for you to do with your friends when you act like this. If you want to hear the song, stop talking. Leave her alone. Just close your mouth and be quiet. I'll tell you when to come out. I'm not ready to see you. We're going to turn that off in a minute. You have five more minutes. No, there are no more minutes. It's time to go. Come on, I'm leaving. Just a minute. 
get your hands off me. I don't like the hitting hands. Use your words. No, I can't. You know how to put them on yourself. It makes my back hurt because I'm mean. Yeah, it's hard, it's hard not to chuckle a little bit reading those. I know, you know you guys, I'm going to get the mom look going. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, you know, I've said the, you know, so many of those things, you know, myself all the time. Um, <laughs> so, so uh, talk a little bit about, about the, um, the expectations that, that sort of the culture puts on mothers, because it's very different for fathers. I, 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 it's one of those things that's very sexist still. But like, mm-hmm. you know, my experience as a father is like, hey, you're doing something with your kids. High five. And then, yeah. <laughs> shout out on Facebook. you know, yeah, like just every, you know, if you go, I take my kids like grocery shopping when they're little. And they're like, oh, my God, what a great father. You're ba-. And that's the only like feedback from society I get is like, wow, you're participating. Mm-hmm. Gold star, mm-hmm. you know. Yes. And for mothers, it's the exact opposite. It couldn't be farther from the truth. So, um, so can you talk a little bit about that and, and about that experience of becoming a mother? And, and when did you... Maybe like at what point did you realize there was something like wrong with that? You know, <laughs> um, pretty early on in the process, I realized something was wrong. But um, I do think of it too as like there's so many choices now for women, right? So it's like we, am I going to make this choice? Am I going to work some in the home only? Am I going to work a little bit of both? Am I going to have a full time? Yeah, it just there's just so many options. It just seems like whatever you know, I choose, it's going to be majorly damaging. Yeah, there's just always this feeling of a shoe about to drop. Um, you know, if you do it this way, you're going to damage the child for life. And um, I don't know, it's just such an extreme do, uh, do parenting think, culture. You know? Yeah, do you think, I mean, it, it seems like it must not have always been like that. Like, it must have be something new. It doesn't seem like, like, I can't imagine my grandmother worrying about that you know i mean you know the stories that you hear from your parents being raised or or even mm-hmm. my mother i don't think that the pressure i mean that mm-hmm. i know of was there she's never talked about it anyway um my mom's probably watching right now or will watch tomorrow <laughs> maybe she can tell me tomorrow if i'm wrong but but it feels like there wasn't this kind of pressure um put on mothers and um when do you think that started and why i mean is it a social media type phenomenon like the putting your your whole life in public or is it like the is that a a way to sell subscriptions to magazines or I mean like where does it come (laughs) from you know I know I did read a little you know and the the history of like um even cleaning products you know who are not are not even that old in our country you know it kind of became this thing we're going to market to women and then they need to do all these things in the home um yeah but I just don't even know it became a very you know, if you don't do it this way or if your kid doesn't have this many activities or you make them their homemade whatever to eat this way, you're, it's a real problem. You know? Yeah, I don't know. Hmm. I wonder, you're just thinking about it. I wonder if it does since you mentioned advertising. I wonder if it, um, you know, the different ways that the, the different genders are marketed toward, you know, and, mm-hmm. um, and like guilt is sort of a powerful marketing tool, guilt and shame maybe. Um, mm-hmm. whereas for mm-hmm. men, there's an obvious one, <laughs> which, uh, yeah. the advertisers exploit instead. Um, so yeah. maybe that has something to do with it. I don't know, but, but it just, um, I don't know. It seems, seems like a difficult time to be a parent really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Do you want to read another poem? Yes, I will. Let me get my little, I gotta switch my piece of paper. Okay. So I was read raising Jesus. Raising Jesus, 
Did you pin his arms and hold him down, Mary? Did you smack his legs? Did he ever make you cry, Mary? Did you take a deep breath, count to 10, Mary? I bet you just held it in, didn't you, Mary? Did you hear him say, Mama, again, and cringe and sigh? Were you relieved when it was a temple day, Mary? Did you dream those dreams, Mary, where you see him hurt or worse? Did you wake in prayer, Mary? Did you ask God to let you die first? Another powerfully concise poem, Raising Jesus, uh, from Mother May I. Um, and let's see, we have a, what was this question? Um, so Lacey Snap, this is going back to the last book, but let's just do that. Um, Lock Her Up has a few poems which have the same title, uh, but the content evolved throughout the book. Uh, can you speak to that writing process and why you made that choice? Possibly some insight into how the poems changed uh, for you and for your speakers um, from the beginning to the end of the book. Oh, Lacey, thank you. That is a fabulous question. Um, so one thing I'm just going to say, um, it's really kind of a trend in poetry collections. You know, like I'll just go and I'll look, look at the table of contents. So part of what I was doing was like, well, that seems to be a thing. Let's have this same title show up several times in the table of contents. Um, but I think one thing I was doing with it with something like please for admission versus please for release. Um, and then that'll, that'll be, you know, a few titles like that is that that was the one sided thing was I only saw why a family member would want a woman admitted to an asylum. Like that's what would be in the documents. So that like left me to consider the other side. Like what if she could plead her case to be released? What would she say? Um, so some of those titles linking through came like that. Um, a similar one was in um, the Have What I Left Behind. And then it's called What I Became. There's kind of like a series, but there was a catalog of the woman's belongings. So like I could see, you know, this listed, like she brought in a bar of soap, her apron. So that left me to imagine like what she left behind. So that's where some of the like, title threads would come from come from yeah um that that makes a lot of sense um and how, what was your experience publishing that book i guess since we're going back we're not we weren't planning going back to lock her up but um but 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 what has been your experience um getting these poems published because they are so thematic um and 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 sort of they're they're books that that really hold together as books but it's hard to imagine them like standing out like like being published individually um and and then and then how many like drafts did you go through putting the book together? Like, what was your publishing experience for for these two books? Was it and was it similar between the two? It was similar in that um, I did a push. You know, I kind of do it in different seasons. So I take one season and um, do a lot of submitting individual poems. And I really liked that. Like with Lock Her Up, you are so right. Like I needed um, really several of them to be published together, and it can be really difficult, you know, to get a single journal to do that. But I had. Um, a couple of places I can think of that took a batch of the poems so that they kind of stayed together. Um, so I had that whole, with both of them, with Mother May I Too, I had a few journals take, you know, like a handful of poems. 
Um, and then it's just, all I say about it is it's just being stubborn with, pe- with publishing, um, stubborn as a mule and never giving up placing <laughs> stuff out and don't take it personally. So I think with Mother May, I, I submitted the manuscript probably for a year. Uh, and I do have a really ugly, horrible spreadsheet that just scrolls on and on. Right. of like, well, thing, yeah, where things got submitted. Um, there were two questions um, from Gwendolyn Taylor Soper, who said she bought the book and, and included a link for everybody else to buy one too. So thanks for oh, that, Gwendolyn. Thank you. Yeah, um, she, has, like, yeah she has two questions, um, and maybe we'll do. They're they're sort of separate, so we'll do them uh, separately. Uh, so so she says, Tina, do people in your Appalachian neighborhoods talk openly about mental health issues? Well, maybe they're connected. And and, and a follow up: How does it feel to be writing about important, sensitive topics? So so. Are people talking about that? I mean, I don't know. It, it seems like younger generations, in, in my perspective, talk about it much more than when, mm-hmm. you know, I was younger and I was working in um, in clinical psychology. It, it was like a hidden thing, um, but now mm-hmm. maybe more so, at least for young people. But what is it like in your area? And, um, and how does it feel to be writing about such an important but sensitive topic? Oh, thank you. I like these. Yeah, even when I was growing up um, in Bristol, Virginia, I mean... You know, I guess that's a generation or two ago. It was not talked about and it would have been kind of looked down on um, because, you know, we don't want to like ask for help in that way. Uh, There was kind of like this feeling of you take care of it yourself. And even though at the same time, like it was a threat to, you know, if you get out of line, we're going to send you up on the hill. That's Mm -hmm. where the asylum (laughs) Um, That was the only way it was talked about. And I think it's very different. So now totally different story and it is like you know people talk about where I live um in Appalachia people are very open about you know I'm I have counseling for this and such or here are these resources so yeah that is something that has changed um I think you know just as as a side thing do you know like the economics of mental health I mean in my Mm -hmm. experience it, it seems difficult to um find like even a therapist and then pay for it um Mm-hmm. Do you, I mean, I don't know if you have any, you know, in the current state of it, but, um, but do you know anything about that? Cause I, you know, it was sort of, um, in our little program that I worked at, the state government paid for for that housing. Uh, but mm-hmm. it was a specific program. And, um, and when that like yeah. ran out, there's only a certain number of beds that they would do that for. And, and then it was only people mm-hmm. who could afford the place that, you know, that could mm-hmm. take advantage of the help. Yeah, I think that's right. And so like our two big insurance um, carriers here, you know, they definitely will have mental health providers. But again, that's not going to be something for people who have, you know, hourly, you know, our uh, like frontline workers, you know, for example, it just would depend, I think. Mm-hmm. And then the other question um, from um, Gwendolyn was about how it feels oh, to right. be writing about such a, a sensitive topic. Yeah, people ask me that. Um, I think I just dove into it. I didn't think of it as being, you know, a sensitive, um, timely topic. I just thought more of I'm just going to follow um, what is interesting to me right now. And but I also am a big believer in like we are always a product of what's going on in the climate around us. Like I feel like that's probably what was driving some of my interest in some way. And um, so I'm not going to sit out and be like, I'm a political poet, but again, I can't be removed mm-hmm. uh, from all of that that's around me. So I think in that way, um, what really is interesting to me is 
feminism. And so it's always going to be timely in that sense. Um, yeah. It's hard to answer that one. We could go <laughs> on and on. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, do you want to go back to some poems? Um, we had okay. from Mother May I, we were going to be reading some more from. Okay. Yeah. The next one is, um, it has a long title that's also the first line. I'm just beginning to swear off restaurants with indoor playgrounds. I'm just beginning to swear off restaurants with indoor playgrounds. When a woman turns in her booth, she says, we lost a son. He battled cancer 12 years. They just kept finding it. But you do the best you can. Day by day, you enjoy them. And that was, uh, I'm just beginning to swear off restaurants with indoor playgrounds. Um, another poem from Mother May I. Um, one thing I was wondering reading both these books is how much you feel like, um, you know, I, I hate asking poets like these kind of questions usually, but it feels like your poems are so journalistic that it feels like that event really happened. Um, do you feel like it's creative nonfiction poetry in a way? Or are you, do you feel free to, I mean, I know in, the, in Lock Her Up, you made composites of people, which wouldn't be, fair in journalism you know but mm -hmm, um, right. but it's still the truth of the things you were reading um do you feel like mm -hmm. it do you have like a um you know do you feel like you can change details without any problem or do you feel like you should stick to the truth oh i feel like i change things um but i think i definitely have a journalist in me and that drives a lot of what i do so, and that was you know early Early, many, many years ago, I worked for a small town newspaper, um, which really fed that, like, need to go observe and catalog. And, yeah, I think, it, but again, I don't have, I don't have any trouble making things up because um, that's kind of what becomes freeing to me from, like, the, the true facts. But I'm always fascinated as to what those really are. Yeah, I always feel like there's, a, <laughs> there's just a difference between, like, truth and facts you know mm -hmm, and there's mm -hmm. something that's truer than facts and and it's yeah, like there you go. it's true across like like a fact can be um taken out of context and twisted mm -hmm. and have a different lens and misinterpreted and the truth is that is a fact that can't be done and it, and it works across time and space kind of and is broader than that and i feel like poets are drawn toward truth and, and have real trouble being journalists um, mm -hmm. you know, so I know yeah. some, you know, journalist poets have gotten in trouble over the years, uh, doing that kind of thing, uh, because you can't help it. And you're, you're seeking the truth though. So it's weird to, you know, that, that whole, um, fact versus opinion thing that they do in like fifth grade or whatever, doesn't really <laughs> hold up all the time, you know, and, and no. poets are cutting into it. Um, yeah. And I think that's, you really hit on like, um, you know, someone growing up where there were, you know, taboo things, things that like, girls shouldn't talk about or say like that's what I'm always doing in my poetry like have I said my truth yet have I said it what I need to say and I'm constantly pushing so it is kind of a it's something about truth for me like have I said it all <laughs> yeah, do, do you think that's like the poet's mission like do, would you think that's like central to what you're driven to do as a, as a writer as a poet I think it is. Uh, yeah, definitely for me. And um, is kind of pushing at what my truth is. Mm -hmm. um, well, and just showing up like <laughs> <that hasn't happened. laughs> yeah. sometimes it's receiving and very mysterious. But yeah. Um, well, well, talk about that receiving and mysterious 
aspect of it. Cause that's the thing that I just always find so fascinating. It's what makes me like never get bored with poetry. Um, mm-hmm. is that there's something mysterious about it that, that is always surprising when you engage with it. Um, do you, how do you think about that? Is there any like way to make that magic happen or, um, or, or what do you think is going on? Yeah, I think I just have to, um, and this, it doesn't necessarily seem like I'm going to sit down and now receive a poem as a whole, but I'm just going to let myself follow what is interesting to me in a moment or what I'm obsessing about. And I think we, you know, we can tend to sabotage ourselves sometimes as artists and be like, oh, I'm not supposed to do that or I need to be doing this other thing. Or what if I said that I'm going to hurt someone's feelings, but that's kind of what I do is like, I just have to let myself follow it. And eventually it is going to turn into the next project. Mm -hmm. That's where some of the mystery is. Um, And seeing it, all of the threads come together. That's the moment I love in a project when it's like the threads are starting to come together. Uh, And I don't even know how to explain it otherwise, but it just feels like I'm in this, you know, zone and it's starting to fall into place. That's the only way I can talk about that (laughs) mystery. I don't know. (laughs) um so so let's talk a little bit about your 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 writing process as far as like the individual like like line breaks and putting things on the page and um in in the revision process too um how do you is there any sort of like advice you have or way you go about doing that um like what do you think of in terms of how the poem is going to appear and and how long do you play with it before you like see the poem as it's going to be those are great questions. So a lot of times it's something I hear in my ear. So there's a music to it. And I'm, you know, constantly hearing that in my mind as I'm working on it and revising it. And um, I guess I would say just let yourself hear that music. And um, the other thing would be just be playful. So I will take, like, I'll have a poem and it looks one way on the page and I'll just copy it down. Um, I'm not in word right off the bat, but eventually I'm in word and then I'll just copy it down and start messing with it and seeing, well, what happens if I make this white space here or bump these lines down or start just reversing everything? Uh, A lot of play and and not feeling really personal. Like, I feel like that's what has gotten easier Mm -hmm. the more I write. Like, it doesn't feel like, so we can't touch it. It's sacred, you know? Yeah, Um, yeah. Um, so, so how many like drafts do these go through? Like, do you, do you find like if you, if you submit a poem and say it's like passed on, um, in a magazine or whatever, um, if like several times, do you feel like there's something wrong with the poem and you you work on it or do you feel like, like you're done already and you just wait for the right, right journal to publish (laughs) it in? (laughs) The second one. Yeah. Yeah. I usually, once I have a batch going around, I usually don't touch them anymore. And, and then more so I'll like, if I'm doing a project, I'll look for gaps and um, write into those gaps. That's kind of where I've, it's a lot less mystery sometimes because it's like, oh, I don't have a poem about um, this aspect of this female character. you know. So I will try to make that happen. That's not my favorite thing to do, but I can. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't really mess with them after they're out into the world. I know some people do. That always fascinates me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so one of the things that it's too, I'm trying to find a picture cause I didn't have the cover of mother May, but, but you have great covers of both of these books. Um, let me pull up, um, a picture of the other cover. Um, okay. but this is a uh, mother may I, 
um, which is a very interesting image. I don't know what it's an image of. Um, here, I'll put it on screen. Um, yeah. But this is the cover of Mother May I. And, but it's very evocative, though. Like the blur. I mean, it's definitely space, but then there's some blurred thing. Is that maybe a... Um, Oh my gosh! I just realized what it is. <laughs> I know. I was trying yeah. to give you. I was like, <laughs> yeah. It, so it's an ultrasound. So I've had that book. Yeah. Uh, that book's been on my shelf somewhere, even though uh, <laughs> I didn't couldn't dig it up, and and I didn't realize what it was. So that's a, a picture of an ultrasound. Um, it is. And yeah. over the universe. Um, yes. But then, the, but then this this um, is a really interesting um, painting too. Um, it's a painting of a woman with sort of rocks. Um, mm-hmm. and her, her head is one of the rocks on her shoulder sort of weighing her down um, so two very different but very interesting sort of metaphoric covers um, mm-hmm. so how did you go about like how did, what was the cover process like because they're both very interesting and, and it really affects the way that you look at the book to see the cover so so how did that that process work yeah for mother may i it was um very like to the last minute and the edit one of the editors Seth Pennington had this vision and he was like send me an ultrasound photo um I don't know if that's what you call them but yeah the little and overlay with the you know constellations um what do you think about that so it kind of just came up like with him experimenting and playing with that and knowing the book which was kind of a cool thing in itself um lock her up was um like this art this visual artist and i were both featured in pen and brush and i saw her work and it was one of those things where then i started going to her website i was like i know that's the cover of the book because i had all the poems ready and so her name's sherry weichler and we just collaborated from there so they were really two very different cover processes yeah and that's um uh, Sherry is S H A R I W E S C H L E R. If you want to look for more of uh, of Sherry's work, because it's, I I just love this cover. Um, mm-hmm. So so Jackie McManus has a question here. We we, uh, we have time for maybe you know one more poem and a little bit more talk. Um, Jackie McManus says, "Has your has writing your poetry changed you, and how?" Oh, I love that. Um... I think more if I don't write, it changes me for the worse, right? <laughs> so um, I think my writing has made me like tell my truth and constantly be digging at it in a way that has changed me because, you know, lately I'm thinking, you know, I can carry that over into my relationships, into other aspects of my life to just constantly be, you know, have I said what I need to say? Uh, in that way, it definitely has. And um, yeah, I kind of went from, being the the child, the young adult, um, even in my twenties, who never spoke up to being someone who does. Oh, that's really interesting to hear. Um, that, that it's poetry that's been able to that's done that for you. Um, I don't think I've mm-hmm. ever heard anybody mention that before. Um, do you want to do you want to close out with one last poem? I'm trying to find the poem you wanted to read last, but yes. So for last, I put the one that was. In rattle. Ah, okay. <laughs> uh, it has a long title as well. My four-year-old asks what happens when people die, and when I hesitate, she answers her own question. First, they wake up on the day they're going to die, 
and they pack up all their clothes and they say goodbye to their mama and goodbye to their daddy. They go to a different state and find a nice empty house that's quiet and a good soft bed and they lay down. Yeah, and that was just a uh, one of those poems that's just such such a tight nugget of um of truth like we were talking about before mm-hmm. and um an insight. Um can I ask if your four year old really said that or something approaching that? She often that's what it was hard not to stop when I read that long title. Um often answered her own questions. Mm-hmm. Um and still I'm not quite like quick enough, you know, like I'm an introvert at heart, so you can ask me something that might take me a while <laughs> um, to answer it. I've been on my, I've tried to be on my toes a little more this evening, but yeah, so that was pretty much her. I'm sure I messed with it some and play with the lines, but yes, that was her saying that at its heart. Um, so, so now that these two books are finished, uh, what do you have like, like, right now going on do you have any other obsessions you're working on or or projects because you seem to be like a a, i mean maybe i'm projecting but you seem to be from these two books like a project kind of poet where you have some kind of thing that you're Mm -hmm. into um and and that's what drives your writing uh do you have a project that's going on right now yes i do so i'm going to look at um all these appalachian religion survey records and i'm looking back into um the way that People around the 1930s were cataloging churches um, in Appalachia. So I'm fascinated. I'm like, they get to go and write down all these little details um, and the backstory that's there. So that I'm looking into. And always there's, I call them my kind of creepy minister religion type poems are a part of that as well. And I let myself take in a lot of true crime because I know that that's all going to come together somehow in mm. that in this new project that, that's really interesting what, what did you learn by looking at those surveys like what what is surprising from that archival information that what was fascinating to me is um they are cattle they catalog again this is what i'm always like the ministers or like their lay preachers they all get their own page um, there's a lot of focus on like this preacher does not have any education. So, you know, you can kind of see where the person cataloging it is coming from. Um, and then the other fascinating part is there like the whole sections that are like dog eared and turned down. And so these are the women who are working in the churches. Um, but it says do not tabulate. So, basically, uh, right. They're not getting counted. So that's kind of, that's Hmm. one little thing that's fascinating to me. Um, And always, like I think about, you know, at the heart of this is the church is just a huge, like, role in these communities um, in this time and really still today in a lot of places in Appalachia. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, what you come up with and how you put all that together, because that sounds fascinating. Um, Tina, (laughs) thanks so much for, for joining us and being a guest today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm really honored to have been with y'all. And like we talked about truth, I always say, keep writing and keep telling your truth. Right? Yeah, awesome. Thank yeah. you, Tina. Yeah, thank Good. you. Good night. Bye. So that was Tina Parker uh, with her uh, latest book. Her latest book is um, here on the screen one more time. It's Lock Her Up. Um, this is from... Uh, Accents Publishing here. You can see Accents Publishing. That's A-C-C-E-N-T-S Publishing. Um, You can also find 
Tina, the, the best place to go is her website, Tina, T-I-N-A hyphen Parker, P-A-R-K-E-R dot org, O-R-G. So find Tina's poetry there. Her two books are just wonderful, two um, books about things, and you, you learn a lot reading these two books. So um, um, please do pick them up like uh, Gwendolyn did. Thanks so much for that. Uh, we're going to be moving to our open lines in just a moment. And um, before we do that, let me put these numbers on the screen. What did I do? There. So these are the numbers. Uh, this is how you participate in the open lines. We already have a few people lined up. Uh, Gordon Coppola, Nivedita. Uh, Richard can come back if he wants. He has a prompt poem. Uh, Gordon Coppola, I already mentioned. Carla Schwartz. Julian Matthews is here. Um, Vicky Miko, Joy Stahl. So we have a bunch of people. Angela Gartner, too. Uh, we have a bunch of people lined up who would like to share poems uh, based on the prompt or news poems or anything else you would like to share. Uh, Zachary Honeycutt just sent me a little wave. And that's how you do it. So if you would like to share a poem... Um, if you'd like to be on video, do it through Skype for sure. Um, that's uh, Send me a chat message at Rattle Poetry, all one word. Uh, that's Rattle Poetry, just like it sounds. Uh, just wave, and I'll, I'll wave back and acknowledge you like I'm doing for Zachary right now. And uh, then I'll call you when it's your turn. I'll make sure to get new first-time callers for sure. Um, and then uh, if you'd like to call over a phone, though, it's 818-850-7727. That's 818-850-7727. Pick one or the other. But if you call by phone, let it ring a few times and hang up. And you can email the poem to openmicatrattle.com so I can show it on the screen as you read. Now, I'm going to take a really quick break, um, and I'll put this up for you. Uh, next week's guest on the Rattlecast uh, is going to be episode number 100. And uh, this is Allison Luderman, a uh, poet in the Bay Area. Uh, her newest book is In the Time of Great Fire. She sent a bunch of books that we're going to be going through and looking at. And do note the special date. That is the regular time now, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. But because of the uh, Independence Day holiday being on the regular Sunday, we're going to be doing it on Tuesday, July 6th. I assume people are going to be doing their barbecues and things and not going to be live for a rattlecast. So we moved it up. That's what I'm going to be doing too. Uh, so we moved it up to July 6th. And that will be Rattlecast number 100 with Allison Luderman. Uh, the prompt poem this week for the open lines coming up was to write a poem about um, a fairy tale. So that'll be the prompts we'll be hearing in just a moment. Uh, but give me a, a second to get all that set up. I'm going to stand and stretch. You can refresh your drinks, and I will be right back in a moment. And I'm back. Thanks so much for giving me that brief moment to get this all set up for the open lines. And now, as I mentioned, uh, as we we're going out of the break, uh, the prompt for this week was to write a poem based on a folktale or fairy tale. And uh, my poem uh, that I picked, I, I looked up, um, so try to find a fairy tale I'd never read before. That was my goal. And uh, I found these, uh, which probably everybody listening is familiar with, but as Bjornsson and Moe are sort of like the uh, Grimm brothers of uh, Norway. And um, they had this, I just love this title, The Giant Who Had No Heart Inside His Body. Uh, I don't know how common that story is, but it was something I pulled up looking for old fairy tales that I'd never heard of before. And um, as Bjornsson and Moe were chronicling these back in the, in the 19th century, just like the Grimm's brothers, a sort of a national pride kind of project that was going on those days where people were trying to uh, thankfully chronicle and save the stories of their time 
And uh, the story of this, the giant who had no heart inside his body, is sort of a, a kind of typical story where a prince is trying to save a princess, um, and this giant um, is too big to kill, obviously, but it turns out he has to hide his heart all over the place. And so um, the the prince finds it eventually in a um, in a egg inside a duck inside a well inside a church <laughs> somewhere. But that's after they sort of tear apart their house trying to find where this giant's heart was. But what was striking about the fairy tale for me was how indifferent the princess seemed. Uh, when the prince shows up um, to try to kill the giant and, and save her, and you know, she's just like, oh, well, if you're gonna kill the giant anyway, I might as well help, <laughs> you know? And then the giant seems kind of um, really not that bad. I mean, uh, he, she's not like in a cage or anything like in those fairy tales. They just, he's just kind of there and he goes out to work every day. And every time she asks him a question, he just answers. And um, so it made me think of that giant, and this was my prop poem based on this fairy tale. Uh, The giant who had no heart inside his body. Didn't know where to hide it. It was a big heart, after all, as big as a Cadillac, as loud as a kick drum. And where do you hide such a thing? He tried the barn, wrapped in layers of aluminum foil and linen, hung on a hook from the highest beam, but still the field mice found it. He woke that night to the tickle of their tiny feet inside the huge hollow of his chest. His own laughter chased him through the darkness until he lifted the barn roof and scared them off. Next he tried the bottom of the lake, sunk with stones to the deepest part. The surface rippled softly with every beat of the mighty heart, but the sound was muffled and the fish well fed. For a while it worked until the cellophane began to leak, and the hole inside him filled with water, a well overflowing, and he wept for days. When the hungry princess arrived, it was raining. He noticed her bright umbrella. Eat, he said, having no other choice, his voice rolling down from the clouds. And so she ate, slice by slice, bite by painful bite for a year, until no one any more might find it. And that was my retelling of the giant who had no heart inside his body, um, an old Norwegian folk tale. And I was pretty happy with that poem. But then, as always, I read Megan's. She's always doing it better than me. Uh, so that is life. This is Megan's retelling of Red Riding Hood. And uh, here this one goes. <clears throat> Red. In another dimension's version... The huntsman never comes to pry open the wolf's stomach like a reluctant, belching mouth. He wasn't passing by. He was home skinning a fresh kill, or kissing his wife, or sleeping when he shouldn't have been, dreaming of swift, darting things. The wolf is satisfied, and nobody minds, because a wolf is all fang and appetite. The girl wishes things were different, but where she is, that's a toothless desire. It floats away like a cape in the wind. Grandmother is sleeping under the sky of the wolf's belly, starless and pulsing. Over and over, nothing happens. Again and again, nobody comes. So that was Megan's retelling of Red, the uh, you know Little Red Riding Hood. Um, and now, let's see what you have for us. As I usually do, I'm going to call a veteran caller for the first time, but then I'll move on to a first-time caller. I just want to let you know that uh, it's like the old-time radio show where there's a delay, so I'm actually in the future, like 30 seconds ahead of wherever you're listening to this, at least. If uh, you have a slower internet connection, it was buffering and stuff. It might be even more than that. So um, you have to turn off your stream when I call you. 
uh, just listen through the phone or through Skype. Um, at least hit mute. It's best if you just click out and come back later because uh, otherwise there's two Tims you're talking to and it's confusing and um, you know, there's that delay and then I hear myself too and, and it just all gets confused. So make sure you, you mute yourself or, or mute the uh, stream at least or, or X out of it uh, when you call in. So let us see. Uh, let's call up Angela Gartner. She was the first person to ask on and she has a Jack story for us. So let's call up Angela. Hi, Tim. Hey, Angela. How are you doing tonight? Turning off. Hold on. Okay. All right. How are you doing tonight? Good? I'm doing good. Yeah. It's a, I just love my new Sunday routine because I don't have to wake up early. Then I have my softball league and then I come and do this, which is just really fun. And uh, so I'm just loving, like the kids asked me what's my favorite day of the week. And, and I said Sunday because it totally is. Um, how's your Sunday going? Good. We had a baseball game this morning, so I'm glad I can join tonight, today. But uh, happy belated Father's Day, too. Last week was kind of harder, but this week, uh, definitely. I like the new time, too. Sunday nights are a little better. Yeah, I think so, too. It's nice a nice way to start the week, I guess, or finish your weekend. Either way you look at it, um, it's kind of one of those buffer <laughs> ranges. Um, so what did you do for the prompt? It was Jack's story. Do you want to say anything about it? Yeah, um, Jack's story is really about... Me and my son would always, you know, go through the Jack and the Beanstalk and I would retell it every like a new way every time. And he's like, I want the Jack story. I want the Jack story. And it was it's always been our thing. Like and I would always I wouldn't retell it the same way. We would always do it in different, oh, that's cool. you know, different kind of things. But it, it's it's the one thing that put him to sleep, like whether we were out of town or at home, it was like the one story that helped him go to sleep. And um, so it, it, it was it's kind of but I always I always had some issues with it as well, because <laughs> it, it does have its it's it's kind of an odd story if you really think about it. And Jack does things that you probably probably wouldn't want your kids to do. Like <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> if you see a beanstalk, don't climb all the way up it, kids. Right? Um. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't want my child to climb it or talk to strangers or you know some of the things that Jack did. So that's what kind of this the the poem is about is is me uh, kind of talking about some things. But it was it was. It was still the best thing ever for him to fall asleep. So it's cool that you you told it and retold it different ways too, because that's the way fairy tales or, or folk tales are supposed to work. You know, that was the history of them. Um, you know, I was um, I was what was it? I was I would like to say the name of the podcast. I was listening to some podcast, and um, but they were saying that like the ways that the, the words we use are based on. Um, um, Oh God, I'm drawing a blank. There's certain words for storytelling, like telling a yarn is an example where it was um, a yarn is, you know, people would be doing menial tasks throughout the day. And that was just a way they entertained themselves while they were yarning, <laughs> you know? And so that's why a tale is called a yarn. And, um, and, and so many other words like that just come from that day to day labor of just entertaining yourself by telling a story. Um, so it's so cool that, that you um, were doing the same thing and not just reading a book, you know, and, and telling it differently every time. Well, yeah. And I mean, it's, it's what story. And I think, you know, it's something that was attracted him to the story because, you know, because, you know, I had the book, it's like the gingerbread man, you could tell that in all different ways, too. So but Jack and the Beanstalk, like once I started telling it, and then he would also sometimes tell me a Jack story himself. So like we would kind of trade off, but mine always worked like to put him to sleep. though. So. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's great. Well, let's hear this. This is a story. Let's hear this. This is a Jack story. Jack story. Why would Jack talk to the bearded stranger when going on his mother's errand? I also never understood why he climbed the beanstalk instead of picking and canning the miles of green pods. This was my son's nighttime ritual, his mom telling the Jack story. In my town, Jack meets a turtle, bunny, or wolf on the road after scaling the leafy greens past the birds and tallest trees. They warned him of the dangers of the woods and house on the hill. But he would sneak in the giant's kitchen to steal money or pancakes or play a street hockey game against the big ugly friends. Most nights I would dream of the stealing the golden goose and mounds of gold coins. A hand the size of a building would seize me around my waist and throw my body into the clouds. What's the moral of this story? Jack, a thief. He murdered a man, leaving the giant's wife, a poor widow, she didn't recover her husband remains after he fell to his doom. For years, this boyhood adventure brought the same man to my son's bed. He would sprinkle the dust on his eyelids. They would get heavy, and soon he was snoring. Then I didn't care how Jack behaved because I could happily sleep far, far away. Oh, that was, that was wonderful. Thanks so much for sharing that, Angela. Thank you, Tim. Have a great night. Yeah, you too. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. It's Angela Gartner with Jack's Story. A really good poem and, and good conversation. Thanks for joining us, uh, Angela. Uh, let's up. Next up, we're going to go down to call up Gordon Coppola. Hey, Gordon, how you doing? I'm doing great, thanks. How about yourself? I'm doing excellent. It's a good night of poetry so far. Uh, what do you have for us today? Well, I got a little sonnet called Pinocchio Did Nothing Wrong. Excellent. And, and why did you pick Pinocchio? Um, it's such a great... I lo- we love the... Um, you know, the Disney cartoon, because it's so dark. I don't know if I like my kids watching it with us, but but I like watching it the most, I think. Well, certainly the Disney cartoons were a big part of growing up, even when I was a kid. I mean, they were a really special thing back then, because they came along in theaters like on a, like a seven or eight year cycle. And so if you missed Pinocchio when it came out, uh, so I saw it whenever it came out in its cycle. And then my parents, I think... Uh, we didn't have VCRs back then, of course, uh, but yeah, it was. They were always very special, and uh, this and Pinocchio it, itself, that that particular movie, you know, won the Academy Award, and it's. I mean, it still stands up as just a, a brilliant piece of of cinema of art. Yeah, yeah, for sure, it really was. It, it's. I, I just think it's the most like poetic or artful of the Disney movies you know it, it's sure. one of those that's like you know we talk about the truth and the mystery and stuff like it's hard to articulate you know Pinocchio whereas other movies you can kind of like know what they're getting at and what the themes and morals are but Pinocchio is, is just a, a you know it's like a poem more than any other uh, of, the, of those movies I think having watched every single one over and over and sure. over again with my kids at this point <laughs> um, okay so let's hear this Pinocchio did nothing wrong in a sonnet which we always love of course let's hear it Gordon the corpse of ukulele Ike, my friend Cliff Edwards, vaudeville and movie star, and Jiminy Cricket's voice went unclaimed and was donated to the UCLA Medical School. Two actors' charities and the Disney folks, Disney folks got him buried right. Cliff wished upon at least a million stars, including losing ponies at the track and three alimony-enriched ex-wives. Those strings the blue fairy magicked away kept growing back to tangle him. 
booze, drugs, and a kind fool's destiny with cash. Cliff, there's a gig opening up at Pleasure Island Cabaret. The boys think you'd be perfect. Oh, wow. Well, thanks for sharing that. Pinocchio did nothing wrong. Uh, great poem. Thanks, Gordon. Thank you, Tim. You have a good night. Yep, you too. Of course, uh, Gordon Coppola with Pinocchio did nothing wrong. Um, okay, yeah, we have a phone number for Zach. So let's uh, let's call that up. We'll get Zachary Honeycutt on the line. Hey, Zachary, how you doing? Hey, how's it going, man? I'm doing good. Glad we could connect. Uh, I don't know what was going wrong with Skype, but it just wasn't working. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what's going on either. <laughs> I tried to use Skype for the first time, and I, I guess I didn't do it right. Yeah, no problem. I, a lot of times what it is, just for everybody watching too, is that if you have another um, um, application that you do, um, you know, like Zoom or something, or one of the other video or Google Meet um, sometimes that will still be like controlling your camera, which is kind of creepy. <laughs> but uh, but if another program is using your camera, the Skype can't access your camera or microphone. So that is sometimes the problem if uh, if the video and stuff doesn't appear. Um, so, but anyway, but what what um, I think this is a fairy tale poem you had for us, right? I got two poems for you today. I've got the Fox Feet, which is a fairy tale poem, and I also have a poem that I just got published in Warp 10 a couple weeks ago. Ah, very cool. Congratulations on that. Uh, what is uh, Warp 10? Tell me a little bit about that, because I'm not familiar with Warp, that publication. Uh, yeah, they, um, they actually have advertisements and new pages. That's how I found them. Ah, cool. And they're really, really cool. They're devoted to anything sci-fi related or Star Trek related. Um, and uh, they also publish a lot of sci-fi poems and short stories. And when you go on there, you kind of feel like you're uh, riding on the U.S. Enterprise because the home page itself has all of like these decorative stars all around it. So it's it's really really cool the ambiance and everything. And so I sent them uh, this sonnet that I had wrote about aliens, and the editor really loved it, so he published it. Uh, is this the the house beside the road? Yeah, the house beside the very road. Cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have this up. Uh, I went to the website and so everybody could see it. Yeah, that is very cool. It's like, and I love, um, you know, I'm a science nerd kind of guy. I love science fiction, and so, um, and I, I think there's like, like there's not enough uh, science fiction and fantasy type um, publications for poetry. It seems to me, and there are a few like Strange Horizons and things like that that publish poems. But it's really cool to see a new one that I hadn't heard of before. So thanks for sharing this. Why don't you start with that since I have it up? Uh, the house beside the road. Uh, is there anything you want to say to introduce it first? Um, I wrote it a few years ago. I think it was one of my 3 a.m. ideas. <laughs> I get poem ideas at 3 a.m. sometimes when I can't sleep, and I'll just write a poem, and then I'll fall back asleep. And um, <laughs> that's really, I think, all I have to say about it. Okay, cool. Well, let's hear it. I'll put it up for everybody at home. Yeah, I'm waiting to see it. Oh, you're gonna have to read it yourself because uh, that that delay okay. you can't you won't be at the same spot in the poem as uh, this video is. So that's cool. I got it. All right, here we go. Sonnet nine: The house beside the road. I saw a small house beside a stone road that stretched forth before a shriveling sky, revealing to me some knowledge of old. Secrets that slumbered now showered the sky. They moved under heaven before my eye, over and under and next to the stars. 
Throbbing and bobbing the trampoline sky, up close and not shy, unlike far Kesars. Inside of them, what personality, alerting me they're here like headlights of cars, glowing to wake the sleepy galaxy, shimmying for the moon, fading like scars. And who was with me to witness these things? The house won't whisper of birds without wings. Oh, that was really cool. Uh, thanks for sharing that, Zachary. The House Beside the Road, Sonnet 9. Yeah. And, uh, and that was, again, in Warp 10 Lit. And uh, 10 is the numerical 10. So it's W-A-R-P-10-1-0, L-I-T dot WordPress dot com. So that'd be cool. I have to check that out and uh, explore around some of the stuff they're publishing there. That seems fun. Thanks so much for sharing that. Yeah, no problem. Okay, take care. Have a good Bye-bye. night. Yes, that was uh, Zachary Honeycutt. Uh, David Williams is a first-time caller. Let's call up David. I'll make sure I have him on mute in case he's got the blare going. He's got two poems for us. Let me pull up a Word doc to make sure we don't dox him. Hmm, well, David's not picking up either. We'll, We'll swing back to David in just a little bit. So let's see. So next up, let's do Joyce Stahl instead. Hey, Joy, how you doing? All right. Uh, what do you Enjoying have? the show. What do you have for us tonight? Well, uh, I have a uh, poem based on a story that I had seen uh, two days in a row because of the vagaries of Facebook uh, showing me the same thing uh, about the uh, L.A. County telling people to stop feeding the feral peacocks in the neighborhood in, in an attempt to get rid of them or uh, because there are too many or uh, I, a lot of factors going in there. And yeah, so I, I kind of, yeah, I saw that story too. And it made me want to go find some feral peacocks to feed. Actually. <laughs> I remember thinking like that would be something we could do with the kids. Go hunt for some oh. feral peacocks to feed. But I guess maybe that's not a good idea. Yeah. Um. <laughs> well, and, and I really went down a research rabbit hole because I started looking at, at bird watching blogs and um, found some really interesting facts about feral peacocks and the fact that California is not the only place that they exist. Um, but uh, they, they're really kind of interesting creatures, um, but they're not going anywhere. Like you can stop feeding them and they're not going anywhere. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so. That's true. Um. <laughs> Okay, well, let's hear the poem. I have it ready. Okay. Don't feed the peafowl. The most conceited of the birds, he struts his stuff too cool for words, fans his plumage and rattles it. He takes to Twitter in all cap. His wingman has deserted him for a peahen not worth notice. The neighborhood shows no delight at hosting the peafowl mixer. Peahens pretend disinterest in the nightly karaoke. March through August, they're pairing up, though these aren't Easter eggs they lay. Peacocks are not migratory. Strutling, strutting settlers are here to stay. Don't feed them. They're omnivorous. You'll have to move out of L.A. Excellent. I love that, Joy. Thanks so much for sharing that. And you know, a lot of rhyming and uh, and fun poems that rhyme, which are interesting. Uh, you know, I don't know if you saw the episode with with Melissa Balmain from Light, but people should be sending her poems because these are fun. Yeah. 
Well, thanks, Joy. Have a good night. You too. Bye. Okay, so that was uh, Joy Stahl, of course, from uh, Elkhart, Kansas. Let's call up now David Williams over the phone. Hey, David, I hear myself in the background, so cut off your stream. So I have you on mute for a second while I hear that. That's better. Yeah, thanks. So thanks so much for joining me. Um, this is David Williams. You're, you're live on the air. Who am I, uh, or where are you calling from? Uh, Lincoln, Nebraska. Excellent. Well, I'm so glad you could join us. And you said you have um, two poems, two sonnets for us. Do you want to explain? Yes. I'm happy to re- have you read them both. Um, the first one I had here was uh, Buggers. Do you want to explain a little bit about that poem? Yes. Well, first, um, I mainly write sonnets, but these are from a series of sonnets that I'm writing called Sonnets for Kids. And I didn't really have one about a fairy tale. I didn't know there was a prompt. But I saw this one and thought, well, the Minions, that's a fairy tale. (laughs) So that's, that's where this one's coming from. Yeah, that sounds good. And and just for everybody and, and for you too, you don't have to do the prompt. The prompt is just uh, something to encourage people to write poems. And, and really, the prompt, honestly, is for me. So I uh, I have something to write because um, I like doing doing prompt poems. But um, but that's the point. So you can share whatever you'd like. And uh, let's go hear this Buggers poem first. Okay. And this is more just something to have fun with. Um, most of my sonnets are highly serious, but just have fun with this one. Buggers. Those little guys with funny eyes are minions. Really, I don't know if they are guys. They have some hilarious opinions and tactics that don't work so well for spies. They gambled all to get to New York City, and everyone chased them away, showing them no tolerance or pity, though all they really wanted was to play. And then they made friends with their nemesis, a monster who'd have rather seen them dead, but they helped her out of her senses and won by getting down inside her head. These bug-eyed little bots with many digits chirped all awake like little yellow crickets. Oh, that was great. Well done, Sonnet. Buggers. Uh, That was David Williams. Uh, David, what is it about sonnets that, that makes you want to write sonnets? Just let me ask. Well, I have had a lifelong passion for sonnets starting way back in the 70s when I started memorizing them just because I loved them. I later taught them in high school for over 30 years. And now that I'm retired, I'm finally getting around to trying my hand at writing them. Oh, that's wonderful. That's great to hear. Uh, The other one was messaging with the grandkids. Is there anything you want to say about this before you read it? I will just say that it is self-explanatory. This was something that actually happened, and this was my message to Riley. Okay, cool. Well, and, it was re- and, and, and it was recorded just much as I'm reading it here. Oh, wow. Well, let's hear it. I, I have it ready, too. Okay. Messaging with the grandkids. I talked with Riley earlier today. He showed me how to use the message app and just record the things you want to say. As needed, you can even belch or clap. This has some advantage over text. I mean, who really wants to spell a belch or alphabet a clap? And what comes next phonetically when T-Rex starts to squelch some grandpa's silly efforts crammed with letters? These kids, I tell you, what comes out their mouths is often even better than their betters. Those 
sometimes less than lovely when in crowds. When Riley learns to type, he'll be a wonder. Batman, beware if Riley gets your number. (laughs) P.S. Riley, record me something new. I'll put them both on Facebook. If you do... Oh, those are wonderful. Well done, Sonnets. Thanks so much for sharing both of those. Messaging yeah. with the grandkid and uh, the buggers. Thanks so much, David. Thank you. Yeah, hope you call in again and, and share some more anytime. Yeah, this has been fun. Yeah, good night. Night. Okay, uh, before we have, let me uh, put David Williams in our phone book so that I know who it is next time. And then uh, we have another first-time caller. Uh, Gwendolyn Soper, who we had had some great questions on uh, for uh, for Tina earlier in the show, and it's another first time caller, so let's call up Gwendolyn. Oh, I hear myself in the background, so mute if you haven't yet. Okay, that sounds yep, good. Yeah, I've muted. Yeah, okay. Excellent. Thanks. Well, you're live mm-hmm. on the air, Gwendolyn. Thanks so much for sharing something, um, and thanks for that, oh, those yeah. good questions earlier in the show. You're welcome. That was an incredible conversation that you had with Tina Parker. Holy cow! Yeah, well, these are just so fun. It's it's I love doing these. It's episode 100, obviously, and uh, they're just never they're always fun. So um, and always interesting. And every poet is different. It's uh, you never run out of stuff to to hear and talk about. Um, yeah. So so what what did you want to share tonight? Well, actually, I'm sharing something about the opera, the Magic Flute, because it's based on a fairy tale, uh, written by the German a German fellow named. Emanuel Schikanator, who wrote the libretto for the opera. And, you know, it's really interesting that today's the day that you had this poetry prompt because here Tina Parker and you were talking about your experiences in the world of mental health and helping people and mental health awareness. And here is this person in the opera, The Queen of the Night, Uh, or the opera, The Magic Flute, and her character's name is Queen of the Night, and she's basically like the most unhinged, mentally unbalanced person you could find in, I think, any fairy tale. She's just got like multiple personality disorders, like narcissism, anger management problems, (laughs) super arrogant. You know, she's super envious of, Rastro's fame because he's like the king of light and here she's the queen of the night and I mean she's so evil she can't bear to see her daughter Princess Pamina held in Sarastro's power so she hands her a dagger to go kill this king anyway so yeah it's my stories all coming back I, I did see uh it's I think this is the last uh thing it was on I don't know if it was off Broadway but it was in New York City um, I saw a performance of this uh, maybe four years ago or so, and I think it's the last <gasps> time I saw anything in a theater. Um, but it was great. It was I didn't under, I didn't know anything about oh. the story going in, so it was one of those I was yeah. learning as I went. But um, it was a spectacle for sure. It was really interesting. Uh, yeah, I kind of wonder if for children it might be a good introduction to opera because there's that man who goes around the forest playing a flute and. Mm-hmm tinkling like bells and all that stuff. I don't yeah, know. it definitely would be good. It's interesting. Um, but let's hear this Queen of the Night uh, poem. Queen of the Night. And I've written it in two acts because the opera is also an act, two acts. Queen of the Night, Act One. I was her, the desperate woman on stage singing the mommy dearest of the coloratura folk, 
Hell's bells, her voice is a dagger, piercing high notes like the sharp weapon she forces Pamina in tears to take. Sarastro sees it coming, light no surprise wins in the end, but not before Tamino's flute changed sorrow into joy and audiences were charmed with Papageno's bells. Act Two. I really wish Mozart could see the opera now, sitting in the balcony, He'd be thinking, wait, I was so bored when I wrote it. I never thought they'd take it seriously. Oh, that was excellent. Thanks so much for sharing. That was Gwendolyn Soper with uh, The Queen of the Night. Thanks so much for sharing that and calling in, Gwendolyn. Yeah, you're welcome. And I actually sang in that opera, and I sang the role of Queen of the Night. Oh, wow. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me on the show. Very cool. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome, Tim. Yeah, that was Gwendolyn Soper, and uh, Gwendolyn has a website here, which she included at the bottom, which anybody is welcome to do. But you can find Gwendolyn Soper at Gwendolyn Soper. Let me put that on the screen. GwendolynSoper.com. That's W or G W E N D O L Y N S O P E R dot WordPress dot com. Um, okay, so um, let's call up Carla Schwartz. Who else do we have? Uh, Richard could come back if we have time. But first, let's do instead Carla Schwartz, like I said. Hey, Carla, how you doing? I am, I am good. I am good. Thank you so much. It's a wonderful night of yeah. listening. Yeah, it's been a great discussion. show. I like the, the prompt and what everyone's come up with. And, um, and, and just all the, all the segments have been great so far. Uh, what do you have to share with us? Okay, so, um, you know, I saw the prompt and I said, okay, well, I went to this um, I, I found this fairy tale called Frau Hulla or Mother Hulla. And, um, and the gist of it is that there are two sisters. One's a, like a do-gooder who's very, does a lot of work and she gets sent off and eventually comes back and she's showered in gold. And then there's this other sister that's lazy, does nothing and gets sent off or she gets, you know, she thinks she'll she'll get the same treatment and come back showered in gold, but it turns out that she gets showered in pitch in mm-hmm. tar. You know, mm-hmm. so that's the basic story. Um, and um, so I have this poem, which is uh, kind of a different take on it, <laughs> and it's called Father Hola. Excellent. I'll put it up and go ahead whenever you're ready. Okay, I work for our father. It's called elder care, wiping his bottom, showering his body. Listen, I'm not crazy. Germs cause cancer. Our father's riddled with cancer inside and out. Not everyone does the same kind of job. I clean the dust, wash his clothes separately from mine, of course. The other day, I hired two men and a truck to haul, that's H-A-U-L, sorry, all his furniture away and the books. So when he dies, I can just step away. Of course, I care about the environment. I care about the cows and the ducks. I worry I'll be homeless when he dies. So I wrap his legs. Don't let him breathe fresh air. There's a world of germs outside. If he steps out there, he may fall. 
he may shit his pants. Today, I roll up the rug. He may shit on that, too. Don't tell me how to help him. I own helping him. No one can do the job I do. I know it. Two people can't do this job. If I hire a live-in aid, they will steal everything. Slavery is not legal in this country, you know. I take what I am due. I'm the sister covered in gold, not you. It's clear to me you feel deprived because you don't have to stop swimming to change a diaper. Don't respond. Just talk to him. You find him a new memory pill. They only want your phone number. Listen, I'm not crazy. I'm very stressed. And I know you can't help your muddied self. Tyler Schwartz, thanks so much for sharing that powerful poem. Um, I am the sister covered in gold. What a line that is. That was Father Hole or, or Father Hall. Um, thanks so yeah, much for sharing Hala. that, Carla. Hala. Father uh, Hala. Thanks yeah. so much for sharing that, Carla. That was great. Oh, thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Yep, bye. Okay, so while Carla was uh, on the line, we had a phone call from a, a f- uh, 405 number, and I'm wondering if that might have been one of the people we've been missing. We have Jason Brunner, who just sent a poem a little bit ago. Let's see if that is who it was. It could be Vicky, too, from a different line. We'll see. Hey, this is Jason. Hey, this is Tim from Rattle. You are live on the air. Thanks so much for calling. Jason Brunner, I assume, right? Yeah, Jason Brunner. Bruner, yeah, thanks so much for calling. I'm glad you could get connected and share a poem with us. Um, yeah. So what do you have that you'd like to share today? Um, this is a poem I wrote. It's actually, um, I was in an airport, just kind of uh, wanted something to do, and this kind of popped into my mind. And then when I saw it, uh, this week is fairy tales, I, I thought this matched pretty well. Well, that's perfect. Great to hear. And I forgot to ask, where are you calling from? Um, I am visiting my parents in West Manfield, Ohio, but I'm from Oklahoma City. Uh, very cool. Well, I'm so glad you could join us. Uh, let's let's hear this poem, Our After. Go ahead whenever you're ready. Yeah. All right. Our After. We spoke in thimblefuls, produced miniature bouquets of sentiments that littered the pebble way to the cookie-cut cottage we created. Our child was malnourished, almond brittle boned, and all we could conjure was a lizard tongue brew that turned her candy green. Come first flake fall, she died. And you tipped over the hat rack on your way out the rainbow pane door. And I scooped up our words and burned them. Oh, wow. Another powerful fairy tale are after. Uh, thanks, Jason, for sharing that. Yeah. Okay. So that was uh, Jason Bruner. Let me uh, put Jason in the contact. Yeah, so so I have a whole bunch of poems, too, in the open lines, uh, coffers here, which um, what I'm going to do is read them when we have time. I, I don't want to go past the time it is now pretty much. Um, but on days where you don't have as many open line callers, I will um, play and read some of this other stuff that people have sent me in our open lines inbox. And, um, and uh, I'll let you know if I read your poem this week. That's how I'm going to handle it. So that is the show for today, everybody. It's been a wonderful show. I had a lot of fun, a lot of great poems. Um, I loved all the rhyming, too, and all the, all the form. Um, now, next week's prompt 
is going to be, let me put this on the screen, next week's prompt will be, write a poem in which the speaker is aboard a moving train. Write a poem in which a speaker is aboard a moving train. That is your prompt for next week. And um, you have two extra days to do it, actually, too, because as like I said before, uh, next week's guest is Allison Luderman on Rattlecast number 100. But because next Sunday is Independence Day, we're pushing it back to the Tuesday time that we used to do. Um, Tuesday, July 6th, 8 p.m. Eastern time, 5 p.m. Pacific. I think we'll be able to catch more people live that time. That's the only reason I'm doing it that way. And like I said, I will put the schedule of times on rattle.com slash rattlecast um, just to make sure that everybody knows when the broadcasts are going to be because throughout the summer they're going to be all over the place uh, but mostly Sunday nights at this time 8 p.m. Eastern but next week for Rattlecast we'll celebrate episode 100 with Allison Luderman just one of the most consistently great prolific poets I mean she sends poems all the time we've published her a whole bunch of times um, in the time of great fires is the next poem, and um, I, you know, book of poems, and I haven't read it yet because I like to read them right before the show, the like day before. Um, but I'm wondering if that's timely, unfortunately, too, with all the fires that are be propping up around here. Um, but we will see uh, what that title means uh, next week on Rattlecast number 100 with Allison Luderman. I will see you then. Hope you have a great rest of your week. Talk to you soon. Good night. <laughs>